Amen. Good morning. So before we get into our text, I want to begin with a story, uh, and a story about a big family. I'm not talking about the Bradys or the Duggars or any of your, uh, anyway, wherever you kids are looking at these days. Um, we're going to talk about a family, big family, There's a lot of brothers, 12 to be exact. And of those brothers, one of the youngest was the favorite. He was the one who dad gave the new outfits to. He was the one who dad loved above the rest. He was the one who had these grand visions that God was going to use him in a greater way than his brothers. And he couldn't understand why his brothers didn't like that the older would bow down to the younger. I don't, don't understand that at all. He also really didn't understand why the older resented him, but they did. The older brothers began to hate him and resent him because of the attention and the love that he got from his, from his father. And so this jealousy and this resentment turns to anger. And then it turns into plot to remove him from their life and ultimately premeditated murder. And they carried out this plot. They did everything in their, their power to be, to be rid of him. And as far as they were concerned, he was dead and gone. But the beauty of this story is that God redeemed him. God delivered him from certain death. And God used him the faithful young brother, to deliver the old, older, stubborn, hard-headed brothers from death. And in turn, save the rest of their children, grandchildren, and the rest of the nation. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably assume this story is talking about Joseph. And this story is talking about Joseph and his brothers, the, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the prime example and where we get the quotation from of what man meant for evil, God meant for good. It's the prime example in the Old Testament of God taking the evil plots and manipulation and lies of men and using it for his glory to redeem his people. And you should know that that prefigures or um, speaks of and looks forward to our text this morning. A picture of God using a son, a beloved son, to save his kinsmen, to save his brothers who hate him, so that they may be saved and their families may be saved, and that God may be glorified through the most unlikely means. And so I want you to have that, that picture in your head, because the story of Joseph parallels very well the life of Christ and points us to and exalts him. So families, as you go home in your outlines, that's the first question. This is a good thing to think about and a good practice to get into with your children. When we read the, the, the Old Testament scriptures, how does this teach us to and point us to Christ? You can read the last 13 chapters of Genesis and there are plenty of uh, of opportunities to point it to Christ. Every one of those chapters includes something about Joseph, except for the next chapter, 38, which includes Judah, 
the tribe that Jesus would come from, the kingly line. Every chapter at the end of Genesis is pointing us to Christ. And so that is about 2,000 years removed, but nothing has changed. The older brothers are still angry. The younger brother is still favored. And God still has a plan to redeem his people in spite of the evil plots of men. So uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read a big section here, and then uh, we will work through it. Mark 14, I'm going to begin in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we petition you this morning to grant us understanding and insight through your spirit. That we may begin to know you more as we look at a text like this. As we begin, hopefully, to examine ourselves in a text like this. So often we can just look at the facts, the events, and take little thought to what this means for us what we can learn from it, how we can grow in it, how we can find confidence in our faith in Christ, how we can find boldness against his adversaries. Lord, may you use our time over time in the scriptures, week after week, hopefully day after day in our own homes, to grow in maturity, to grow in knowledge, to grow in love, to grow in action, that we may be people who hear your word, who receive it, who apply it and do it, so that you may be glorified, and that everyone may know that we are yours. 
They may know that we are your disciples and they may ask us for a reason of the hope that we have. And this passage read with human eyes can be a passage of discouragement. But if read with eyes that can see, it is a passage of hope and encouragement and emboldenment in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So, uh, starting in verse 53, the situation here, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So let me tell you a little bit about what's going on here. And to my understanding, from the, the four Gospels, here's kind of the, the chain of events. We've already looked at Jesus coming out of the city, going into the garden, being taken by the guard, being betrayed by Judas, and now he's being taken to the high priest. And so um, you can imagine the, 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 the high priests are kind of like, at this point, they're not much religious leaders, but they are the political leaders. They are the ones that everybody looks up to. They are um, like the, the family that is always in politics, specifically the ones that's here now. So from what we get in John, and you can read this more in John 18, but just to summarize, John fills in the gaps a little bit. The first thing they do is they take him to Annas' house. So Annas, if you don't know who he is, he's the godfather. He is the one who was high priest for six years, and I think three or four of his sons, and now Caiaphas, who's the current high priest, uh, is his son-in-law. This is the guy who pulls the string. So before you, you, you go before the entire Sanhedrin, you, you bring him before the Godfather. The Godfather's got to kind of give his stamp of approval, his blessing on this whole thing. So that's the first place that they go. And so he gives him this preliminary private interrogation. And he's frustrated with him. And so then he gives his approval to send him to Caiaphas. And so at Caiaphas' house, and so um, he's the, the, the current high priest, so we have, uh, or not we, I had nothing to do with it, but someone excavated uh, his house. So we know where he, where he, he lived. And so it's a, it's a palatial uh, palace underneath the, the, um, the foot, uh, or at the foot of the temple. And so underneath his home, since it's, a, it, it's, at, a, it's at an angle, they had dug out grottos and, and caves and, and cells. So they would intern prisons underneath, or prisoners underneath his, his homes. A lot of the archaeologists think that this is where Jesus received his, his, his beatings, um, or some of them, because they could do it uh, away from the eye of everyone else. It was underneath his, his house. And so they would, they would do a lot of in-house discipline uh, among the, the Jews, literally in his house, but in-house among Israel before they go to Rome. Rome, the only power Rome had was in, was in capital offenses. So this was a, a common occurrence that they would come, prisoners would, would uh, stay there, they would receive a trial. So that's not too much out of the ordinary. Um, and the, we'll, we'll get to what's out of the ordinary in a moment. So that's kind of what's going on. Jesus goes to Annas, he goes to Caiaphas, he goes to Caiaphas he's in his house, and the entire Sanhedrin, this, this list here, Chief priests, elders, and scribes, 71 members of San Sanhedrin. Every, it, this may not be exhaustive. There may not be 71 there. Um, I, don't, I don't think there is, and we'll get into that later. But basically, representative of every form of authority in Jewish life is there. Most of them, all meaning there's enough to make a decision. They, they all come in the middle of the night to his house. This is not a notice they got last minute. This has been planned. This has been plotted. And 
So now we're following the action into Caiaphas' home. So the next detail here brings in Peter. Peter has nothing to do with our text directly. But as we've said before, one of Mark's techniques, the, the, the very technical term that commentators use is a Markin sandwich. Very technical. Basically, Mark likes to introduce an idea, um, bring about another idea, and then conclude that idea afterward. So it's like, here's the bread, here's the bread on the other side, and it points you to the meat in the middle. So Mark introduces Peter, and Peter coming into the courtyard of the high priest, but then he'll conclude talking about Peter in the following verses, picking up in verse 66. So we won't address Peter this morning, but we will bring it back next week uh, after we address the, the trial. So got the background out of the way. Um, they're gathered. Peter's there. He's in the courtyard. He's sitting with the guards, warming himself. And we're going to pick up in verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council, this is Sanhedrin, were seeking testimony against Jesus. Now, first thing we need to know here, they were seeking. It's not, doesn't say they're seeking the truth. They're seeking testimony against him. Their minds are already made up. We, we saw this at the beginning of chapter 14. Mark tells us at the beginning of the festival, they come together, and the entire Sanhedrin came together at the beginning of the week, saying, we know Jesus is going to be here. This is our opportunity. We need to arrest him and kill him. This is the stated, expressed goal of the Sanhedrin. But their one concern, as people pleasers, and as wanting to remain above the fray, they don't want their hands dirty, so they don't want to do it during the festival. Because they know everyone will be watching. There's a reason why they're doing this under cover of darkness. That's 14, 1 and 2. This is uh, their stated goal. But why all the hostility? Why does Jesus need to be murdered? Couldn't they just give him, a, couldn't they just give him 40 lashes like they gave to, to Paul and send him off? Couldn't they just put him in jail? Couldn't, there's many things they could do. Why must he die? And so for this, we need to go to John. So uh, fair warning this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time in John. So hopefully you know where it is. Two books to the right. Uh, John chapter 11. So John gives us a peek behind the, the curtain, a peek into the, uh, the insidious and ingenious nature of Caiaphas's rule as high priest. So I'm going to pick up in John chapter 11 in um, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, so read Sadducees, Pharisees, gathered the council, Sanhedrin, same group of guys here, gathered together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Here's the reason. Why all of the concern? Why all the hostility? Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Here's the motivation. The motivation is we really like the way things are right now. We're not Rome, but we're right underneath Rome. We've got our place, meaning we've got our authority, and we've got a good little racket going on at the temple uh, because we're, we, we, we have all these other taxes that we're levying upon people. We're getting a cut of everything. 
So not only do we have power, but we're getting rich. If he keeps doing this, he'll take away our place and our nation. We won't be able to uh, operate in this sense of uh, peace and, and uh, covering of, of, of Rome. So this is completely selfish. This is completely for these leaders to remain in this place. But I think this connects us to the motivation of Joseph's brothers too. If, we, if he keeps on like this, we're going to lose our place and our inheritance. Our father loves him more than he loves us. If we let him keep going, we're all going to be worshiping him. So you see the connection here. But one of them, Caiaphas, the uh, kind of the, the evil genius in this, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. I can just imagine how these conversations went when the high priest starts like that. You idiots. Uh, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not for the whole, uh, not that the whole nation should perish. This is amazing. He does not understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. He means one thing. He means it'd be better if, if he died than we all get kicked out by Rome or that Rome makes us subjects. But John, like he does, I, I love John because John gives you the, the commentary along the way, kind of the, the, the spiritual undercurrent of what's going on here. Picking up in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Good so far, they're in agreement. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are spread abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Let's put Jesus to death to save the rest of us. Exactly. Exactly. He didn't know He's following his father's playbook, the father of lies, and he's at play in our text too. But our father, the father in heaven, has a better plan. And he, is, and he uses wicked men to glorify his name. So that's what's going on behind the scenes. So it shouldn't be a surprise if that's their goal, going back to Mark, they are seeking testimony against Jesus. This is the first time out of seven in this text that similar terms, testimony or witness, are used. This is the, the, the current or theme through here. Here's the first one. They are seeking testimony against Jesus. They're not seeking, what we don't see here is testimony for the truth. They are seeking testimony to put him to death, and they found none. If these were honorable men, this should be case closed. We didn't find any evidence to put him to death. There's, there's none. Okay, We've made a mistake, send him on his way. But that's not why they're gathering. They are gathering for the purpose of putting him to death. And like all dishonest, manipulative men, they seek witnesses and facts, full air quotes there, to suit their own purposes. They will choose the experts, the witnesses, the statistics that fit their agenda. So, there's a good practical lesson for us here. It tells you a lot about a man's character or a woman's character. On Do they value the truth? We all have people like this in our lives. We have people like this who 
are in public office everywhere? Do they care about the truth? Or is it just searching out facts and witnesses to, to meet their own agenda? So this is a good question for us. Do we do this? Do we seek out those who love us enough to tell us the truth? Or do we seek out those who just tell us what we want to hear? Tickle our ears. Support what we already want to be true. Here's the stark contrast between what we will see in Jesus and in them. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about justice. They care about the end goal. Wicked men from the beginning of time until Jesus returns will keep doing the same thing. That is something that scripture shows us and that we've seen in our own experience. And sadly, I think many right now, many Christians and many pastors are falling in, in, in line with this. This is what I want to see happen. This is what, where I think things are. So I'm going to, wherever I stand on any particular issue, and I'm not getting into specifics, but I've seen so many pastors especially seek out people and ideas and support what they already want to be true instead of submitting to the truth of God's word. And this is dangerous. This is a, a slippery slope. And, and it is easy to say that we, we want justice to be done, but in practice do something different. So those testimonies they were, they were seeking, they found none. So that means there should be no witnesses, right? They found none, but there's witnesses. How, how, do, how do those two things work? Look at the, the, the witnesses. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Okay, there is no truth out there. Let's just throw enough at them and see if something sticks. This violates the, the uh, primary principle of... of um, Hebrew jurisprudence, we still use this, or you know, practices, uh, legal practices, we still use this today in a court of law. You can't convict someone without witnesses. Look at Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7 says this, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Not false witnesses, witnesses that agree. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So if these witnesses don't agree, all they have is one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. Notice, if you're going to condemn someone to death with your witness, you better put your money where your mouth is. You better be the first one in line to cast stones at him. You better be the first one in line in his crucifixion because you have to stand with the consequences of your testimony. And then afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is a protection for God's people and people throughout the ages that someone with a personal vendetta, one person, can't, uh, can't sentence you to death. This is a good thing. And they are violating it right in front of them. Not only are they violating scripture, and I can go to many more passages, but they are violating their own laws. The Mishnah has a lot to say about what will happen in capital trials especially. Capital meaning one that will lead to death. And they are, are, are violating top to bottom. Let me just read you some of those. This is a highly unlikely trial. First, a trial must be held in the daytime. If this is the truth, it must be done in the light of day, not in the darkness of night. Strike one. It is not to be held during a festival. Strike two. 
Festivals are time of worship, not even to be done on the eve of a festival. Your hearts and minds and bodies should be ready to glorify God, not thinking about a trial. Strike three, the full Sanhedrin, by their own admission, must meet in the hall of hewn stones. There is a, a, a part of, of the temple in the, um, in the outer gate that is set apart for, for meetings of the, of the Sanhedrin. That's where their official meetings happened. So they're not even going to their own prescribed place of deliberation. This is being done in the dark of night um, at the, the foot of the temple in someone's home. Next thing, a capital trial must take place over two days. So the investigation and the interrogation happens one day, but you must sleep on it so that you are not pronouncing verdict on the same day. We'll see that in just a moment. Also, there are consequences for false witnesses. If you get up before the the Sanhedrin, there are consequences for you. Beatings or stonings for false witnessing. And no money shall exchange hands. As we see when Moses is looking for leaders, his father-in-law tells him, find men who fear God and who hate a bribe. And we already know that money changed hands was given to Judas. This entire trial is a mockery and a sham. This is the textbook definition of a kangaroo court. It's a funny term that came about in the Wild West. In the Wild West, because there, were, there was no law in, in, in order, uh, these, these kind of rogue judges would come in. They'd get paid per trial. They would hop in, try to get the trial over as soon as possible, and hop out to get the next paycheck. They wanted to uh, get a verdict as soon as they could. This is a kangaroo court and all of the silly imagery that comes to mind when you think of it. Uh, A bunch of buffoons hopping around. uh, It's kind of what I picture. This is what's going on here. So now, if they're going to bring these witnesses, let's look at the accusation. How legitimate are they really? And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So this is their testimony. If you're familiar with the New Testament, this sounds kind of similar. We know Jesus had said said something like this, um, but what did he say? So the reason this is so damning to Jesus, it's more serious than than, than we realize. Because if he said this, If he said, I will destroy the temple, I will build a new one, and that he is threatening their identity, their religious life, the temple is the center of everything. If you lose the temple, you lose all religious practice, which should give you an indication that there has been no temple since 70 AD. How do they have religious practice? But this is 40 years earlier. So what makes their claims false? Let's dig in a little bit. And to help, Gospel of John, chapter 2. Chapter 2, this is Jesus' I think the first cleansing of the temple. When he goes in and turns over tables, uh, this racket was happening every year. And the Jews are upset, like, if you're going to do this, at least give us a sign. Why are you doing this? This is John chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Look at Jesus' words. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's a lot shorter than what the witnesses said. There's, there's a lot of em- embellishment built into their statement. First thing, 
Uh, keep one finger in John, one finger in Mark. In Mark, what did they say? I will destroy this temple. What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple. The you is implied. You will destroy this temple. Jesus, said, Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple. You will destroy it. This temple, Jesus is standing in the physical temple, so it's understandable that they would think that. But what does Jesus mean? Look at John. The Jews said, uh, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking, John, theological commentary, love it. Uh, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So when the false witnesses say this temple, which one was Jesus referring to? Herod's temple, the one built by human hands? Or his temple, his body, made in the image of God, made by God's hands? His body that would become the first temple of the Holy Spirit, the first man to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So, so far they're off on each point. At least they got the three days right. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Um, I will build. Also another misquotation. There's a slight difference here. What did Jesus say in John? Not I will build, I will raise. This is not a construction of man by hand. Jesus is not a magician. He's not going to realign all of the bricks back together uh, like some Harry Potter scene or something. He is going to raise up the temple that he's referring to. His temple, his body. Kill the body, he will raise by the Spirit. So really what's at stake here? It's the gospel. At stake here is the right understanding of the good news that Jesus Christ in his body will die and he will raise again in body and spirit on the, on, on the third day so that God may be glorified and the nation may be saved or he's just attacking our religious organization. The gospel is at the heart of this. Jesus proclaimed his bodily death and resurrection after three days. The temple that he was concerned about was the new temple. If we look to the end of the scriptures, there is no temple. The temple is the Lord and the Lamb. He is the temple. When he rises, worship is now directed at him. And he sends his spirit that we may be temples of the Holy Spirit, that we may worship him like he tells the woman in Samaria anywhere because God is spirit. He is redefining the temple because he is raising himself as a new temple. This is the outpouring of the gospel. And this is what's at stake in their, their false admissions. But they are carnal people. They can only see temporal things. They can only understand the physical that's right in front of them. But they don't understand that they are staring at the new. The new has come and the old is passing away. And so without eyes to see, in this sense, you can only see in, in physical categories. Um, we, under, we understand this in a lesser degree. You may not think about this, but simple things like radio waves. Radio waves are something you cannot see, but they certainly exist. Radio waves are nothing until you have a, a, a transmitter and a receiver. Then you send energy from one place to another that, that no one sees. There is 
There are things beyond our, our senses that we know to be true that we accept every day. Another, another one is um, electromagnetic radiation. Sounds really complicated, but that's the technical term for light. The visible light spectrum. Light passes in front of our eyes all the time. But unless you have um, a technical eyeball that can distinguish colors or a prism or prism or some kind of refraction, we don't see all the beautiful colors that God has put into light. And so until you are literally given those eyes to see, you are in darkness. This is where they are standing. So these things we encounter every day, we don't realize them, but we also encounter them every day spiritually, don't we? How many times do we talk to those that we love about the good things of the gospel and we get these like, dog stares they're like what are you talking about how many times do we try to explain spiritual things to people who are dead or who are suppressing the truth and we get nothing in return these are carnal people who see carnal things and we have to remember that without the spirit giving them eyes to see it's like explaining color to someone who is colorblind or or light to someone who is blind or radio waves to someone who is deaf this is what's going on before them. They can only understand what's right in front of them. And we need to remember this when we are, when we are facing non-believers. That apart from eyes to see in the work of the Holy Spirit, it's falling on deaf ears quite literally. So let's continue on. Their false witnesses, their false understanding, verse 60 Oh, yeah. Verse 59, yet even about this testimony, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Still don't agree. This should be a clear case right now. The witnesses do not agree, but the high priest, the guy who's presiding over everything, Caiaphas, stands up in the midst and asks Jesus. So you, you get a picture of what's going on here. You know, they're, they're probably sitting in his, in his home. The witnesses stand up to give their version. The, the presiding judge, the chief priest, stands up to give his response. And you can tell that he's getting agitated as he gets out of his seat. And he says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? No answer? Notice how slick he is. How's Jesus supposed to answer? You're liars. You don't even agree with one another. It doesn't, it doesn't, this doesn't even dignify a response. They asked him to defend himself against false witnesses. What sense does it make to respond to liars in a room of liars. What could you possibly bear to gain? Jesus knows this trial is a farce. He knows their minds are already made up. This is why he remained silent and made no answer. Isaiah 53 has been a theme of ours for the past few weeks. The prophecy of who the suffering servant would be in the life of Israel and the redemption of his people. And now we're seeing it fulfilled, particularly verse 7. Uh, if you can turn there, turn there. I'm going to go through this quickly, but it'll be on the screen. Verse 7 is where we are right now. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Fulfilled right here in this passage. Notice the chronology or the, um, 
the verses, the order here. Look what's right before it. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What do we see the last two weeks? Everyone, all the sheep scattered. So since the sheep scattered, a new sheep is needed. This sheep led to the slaughter. There must be a sacrificial lamb because none of the other lambs are good enough. What happens right after he's silent? Verse 8. By opposition and judgment, he was taken away. He's taken away, and for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? What do you think that means? It's a euphemism for being dead. The sheep scatter. He's silent. He's led away. He's killed. And he's stricken for the transgressions of my people. This is playing out step by step in perfect order right in front of us. Perfect fulfillment of that text. So he remains silent, but the high priest is not done. Now here comes the definitive question in the climax of this entire passage. He says to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Notice, he is not acting out of ignorance. He knows exactly who people think Jesus is. He knows exactly who Jesus is claiming to be. Are you the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the blessed, just another term for son of God? Are you? He is getting more agitated and he is hoping to trap Jesus by his own confession. He is playing by his father's playbook, the father of lies, twisting and manipulating. But he doesn't know that he's playing right into the playbook of Jesus' father, the father of heaven who is planning all of this for good in his plan of redemption. So we need to put ourselves in the minds of the high priest for just a moment. Because when we hear Christ... We see it in light of the scriptures. This is, this is his title. This is wrapping up his, his, his humanity, his deity. But for them, it was a human title. For them, the, the anointed one is a son of David. Psalm 2 that we read earlier. Why do the peoples rage and the nations plot against the, the, um, the Lord and his anointed? Speaking of the king, the Lord will put his king on Mount Zion. They are waiting for their Messiah is a son of David who's going to come as a conquering king and overthrow Rome. They see this as a human title. Even son of God is a more common phrase for humanity. So they're seeing it as lowercase n, or excuse me, lowercase s, son of God. Are you, son of the blessed, are you the one that that God sent, the particular son of Israel who's going to redeem us? This is who we're waiting for. Is that you? So if Jesus would have simply answered yes, their response would not have been as vicious. There would have been more interrogation. They would have had a lot more questions because this would be exciting for them. That's why Jesus Jesus doesn't just say yes. His answer is telling here. Up to this point, if you've been with us in the book of Mark, if you read the Gospels, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. My time has not not yet come. They would ask, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Jesus would not tell the masses. He would not say it publicly only to his disciples because his hour had not yet come. It has been veiled up to this moment, but his hour is now. His death is inevitable. The the line has been crossed. They They have already put their plan into motion. And so his suffering will be in a matter of hours. His hour has come. So now he can declare, I am 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. I am. This is divine affirmation. He didn't say yes. He says, I am. I am the living God. I am Yahweh, the one that shall be named. Ego a me, I am. Son of God, yes, and Son of Man. We've covered this before, but if you have not been with us, this is Daniel chapter 7, one of Daniel's most, Daniel's most vivid vision of the one who's like a son of man. He's got characteristics of a human, but he stands before the ancient of days who is the father of heaven, who has all glory, power, and dominion, and this God gives this man all glory, power, and dominion forever and ever. That is why son of man is actually a stronger title. Jesus is affirming his humanity and his deity. Yes, I'm the son of God. Yes, I'm the Christ. But I'm also the son of man, the one that the ancient of days handed his power over to. This is why they get upset. And if they weren't sure of his meaning, he leans in again. I'm not just the son of man, but I'm also the one in Psalm 110. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Psalm 110, we've, we've covered several times here. Psalm 110, where David says, I saw the Lord say to my Lord, Yahweh to Adonai, sit at my right hand, the right hand of power, until I make all of your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I am the Son of God, Son of Man, all power, glory. I am king, I am priest. I am the one that the Father looks at, that David looked to. So yes, I am the Christ, but it is far more than you think. You can see them be stirred up here. Notice what he says, you will see. This is damning and condemning them to their faces. You will witness my power when I return. When I come in the clouds of heaven, the clouds being imagery of God's power, God's presence, and God's judgment. All you need to know is next time I, I, I come, you're standing in front of me as a judge. Next time I come, it will be as a judge. You are standing in front of me as lawless men. I am the lawgiver. You're standing in front of me, sinful men. I am the sinless one. And next time you see me, it's not going to be pretty. This is a battle declaration. This is strong words in front of these lawless men. He stands in front of them. They stood up with false accusations and lies against him. He stands in front of them, innocent and vindicated. And the next time he sees them, they will stand in front of him condemned. He is confident and calm, and they are infuriated. Because they must come to grips with what this means for them. If this is true, this is... Who are they going against? Who are they raging against? The language of Psalm 2 that we saw earlier. If you are his enemy, this should be terrifying. Next time I come, I'm coming on the clouds of heaven. I'm coming with the power of the, the Father in heaven. I'm coming with the, the, the glory of the heavenly hosts. If you are his enemies, you should be terrified. Or you should lash out because you're too stupid to be terrified. But... If you are his beloved and you hear these words, you are sitting here this morning and you are in Christ Jesus, you hear these words, they should be emboldening. Because the next time you see Jesus, he's coming back in power and you're his. They should be encouraging. 
that he isn't scared of the worst that men has to throw at him. He can confidently stand and say, so what? Kill me. I have all the power of heaven. I am my father's beloved. All glory and dominion has been given to me. And if you are in Christ, you share in that inheritance. This should be an encouragement for the beloved. Because no matter how difficult life is right now, no matter how frustrating it is, no matter how much your, your body and your mind and your actions fail you, he is coming back for you with the clouds of heaven. And they are not clouds of judgment. They are clouds of rejoicing. There will be a battle first. But that battle is going to be short and swift. And so when you look at these men who are confronting Jesus, or you look at those who um, rage against him, if God is an angry judge, like many view him to be, you have every reason to fear. You have every reason to hate him. But if your faith is in Christ, the beloved son, the sacrificial lamb, Father in heaven is a loving father and you have nothing to fear. The gospel is good news. When you hear Jesus' admission, we should stand up a little straighter. That is my brother. He's gone before me. He went to the grave so that I might live. So to believers, this is awesome to hear. But for the high priest, he does the symbol of being grieved to the core. Verse 63, he tore his garments. He tore his garments. He's saying, I am undone. I am undignified. He's laying it on real thick. The Oscar goes to Caiaphas in this one. He wants him to see. See, I told you. Blasphemous. What's interesting, this is the same thing that Joseph's older brother Reuben did. When he sees Reuben, who, the, the one who went along with his brothers but wanted to come back and save him, saw that his pit was empty. He tore his clothes, his heart being broken. Another great parallel between the two accounts. But now the high priest has all he wants to hear. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. This he is thinking and hoping is the nail in Jesus' coffin. Literally. But again, they're breaking their own rules. The condemnation for blasphemy is stoning so that all of Israel can see it. They are bringing him before Rome. They are, you, they are abdicating their role or giving up their role as, um, as punishers and, and judges here. So now you get this kind of boisterous response. If you've never seen um, Jews debate, it is always loud and it is, and it is spirited. You can get yourself in the room. What is your decision? And they all condemn him as deserving death. This is not a uh, polite, silent vote where you write it down on a script of paper and hand it in. They're screaming death and they're pounding on the tables and they're, they're chanting. There is, there, is, there is blood in their mouths. They are... They are as ravenous wolves, they want him to die. And so you can see that by how they respond. They begin to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards receive him with blows. They cover his face. Two words here. One is slap and one is punch. 
They are spitting, slapping, and punching him. They want blood. They rage, they berate, and beat. And he is silent and doesn't lash out. So the entire Sanhedrin is present, maybe not one. Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, who would pay for Jesus' tomb, did not agree with their consensus. So at least one was not there. Some scholars think that um, Nicodemus or Gamaliel were not there. doesn't really matter. But what matters here, as we kind of start to bring this, this home, and they all condemned him as deserving death. Death is the goal of their wicked planning. Death is also God's glorious plan of redemption. Here is where they are in agreement with God. Jesus must die. One is done out of, love, or out of, out of anger and, and hatred because he's going to take their earthly kingdom. One is done out of love and mercy knowing that one must die so that the entire people will live. This is how God can use the acts of sinful men and wield them to his purposes to glorify his name through his son. And this is where Caiaphas' prophecy came true. He would have a hand in this, putting to death his only hope of salvation. The language of the first New Testament sermon in Acts 2 declares this. In Acts 2, Peter, now emboldened Peter, stands before Israel. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is Acts 2, 22. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. How does divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together just like this? God planned it and you did it just as he he had appointed. And he was killed by the hands of lawless men. These are the lawless men that Jesus is standing for right now. And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The first sermon of the early church at Pentecost, and every sermon since, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ, dead, buried, buried and raised again. I will tell you this morning, if Jesus died and raised again is not named, it is not a sermon. There are many people preaching moralistic or theologically amazing sermons and never get to Jesus Christ dead and raised again. We discussed this last night in our evangelism meeting. If you don't get to Jesus Christ, son of man, son of God, who died, who rose again and is coming back, it's not evangelism. You're winning them to something else or someone else. Every sermon we see in the New Testament, every sermon that is faithful throughout the ages is preaching Christ and him crucified. There should be a lot more amens than that. That's what's at the, that's what's at the heart of this passage. Jesus must die so that the Son of God may receive the authority as, as the Son of Man because he completed perfectly what the Father sent him to do. Keep the law Go to the cross, save his people, rise again, reign in glory, and return in judgment. 
So in our application this morning, we saw many false witnesses, but I want you to be encouraged. One more passage in John, and he's going to give us our final exhortation here. John chapter 5. There are many false witnesses who came against Jesus, and there is no shortage of them still. In our culture, there is no shortage, not just ours, every age, no shortage of liars and deceivers, and no shortage of people who will be deceived by their testimony. There will always be deceivers. There will always be liars. It breaks my heart when I see so many Christians led astray by people who sound good, just like the men here. Oh, that sounds like something I heard in the Bible. That sounds close enough. I'll go with that. Let us be people who compares it to the word of God. Are these, these criticisms and these accusations against Jesus, are they true? Or are they just close enough like Satan, the father of lies, who takes the word of God from day one? Did God really say? Satan doesn't have to create anything. He can't create anything. But what he does is he distorts and twists what God already created. And that's all false uh, witnesses and false teachers do. But we, if we are in Christ Jesus, we stand with many witnesses. This is a, a great passage, but look how Jesus says, I don't stand on my own. Good sign of a cult is someone who says, I've got a revelation from God and no one else can confirm it. What does Jesus say about himself? This is John 5, picking up in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent John. This is John the Baptist. And he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. He's not appealing to John as the authority, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I was saying the same thing John said. Repent and believe the kingdom is here. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Witness number one. Here's witness number two. But the testimony that I have is greater than John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Testimony number three is even greater than John in the works. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not know, you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't believe the Father because you don't believe this other witness. Number four, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. John the Baptist, his own works, the Father and the scriptures. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Even more basic for his Jewish audience. You don't believe John the Baptist. You don't believe the works. You don't believe the Father. You don't believe the scriptures. You should certainly believe this next witness. Going down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you obey my words? Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are standing with John the Baptist. You are standing with the Father in heaven. You are standing with Jesus' miracles. You are standing with the scriptures. You are standing with Moses. You are standing with Abraham. You are standing with David. You are standing with Solomon. You are standing with Peter and Matthew and Paul and on and on and on and on. There are many witnesses. There is a great cloud of witnesses. And we are called to be those witnesses. 
We are called to be in opposition to these false witnesses. We are called to bear testimony of the truth. We are witnesses. Even though we have not seen with our eyes, the Holy Spirit has given us eyes to see. We know Jesus died on the cross. We know he was resurrected to new life, and we know he's coming again. And we are his witnesses, his ambassadors. The gospel should matter to us because it mattered enough for it to be on Jesus' lips as he was going to his death for you. Amen. But like Jesus, we don't need to lash out like the world does. We don't need to spit and mock and fight. We simply speak the truth. We tell them who Jesus is and what he has done. Because this is the power of God unto salvation. We tell them that he is, he is truly God. He is son of man. He's, he's, he's truly man. He's son of God. He died in atoning death for the forgiveness of sins. He stood in our place. He resurrected for new life that we might have life in him. He is returning, or he is right now, he is reigning in power at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming back in glory. You don't need to lash out. Those words are powerful enough on their own. And if any work will happen, it will be because the Spirit goes before you. And as witnesses, we may face what Jesus faced. You may be mocked spit on. It's not the place of us being hit and beaten in this country, but it is all around the world. It may not be long, but if you are his, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you are hidden in him, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn you? And that picture of him coming in glory, he's coming for you. He's coming for his own. And so we can stand as his witnesses because there is nothing they can do to us. Our king has power and glory given to him by the ancient of days, and it will never be taken away. Amen.